Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hello and welcome. This is Fran Brunel. I am the president of Accelerated Manufacturing Brokers and your host today for the Women and Manufacturing Podcast. Today I am thrilled to have with me Ms. Rosemary Coates. Rosemary is also a host of the WAM Podcast and she heads up two different wonderful organizations. She is the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, and she's also the president of Blue Silk Consulting. Welcome, Rosemary. Thanks. And uh, for the audience's information, as Fran and I are both starting new roles in uh, hosting the podcast, and today we're just interviewing each other so that the audience can get to know us a little bit. In terms of my businesses, yes, I have two businesses. I've been in the big consulting world about almost 30 years now, was a partner in a couple big firms. And then about 15 years ago, I started my own firm, which is Blue Silk Consulting, primarily focusing on manufacturing in China. And in the 2000s, most companies were evaluating the possibility of moving offshore to China because of the attractiveness of the low-cost environment. So I assisted and did a number of moves into China and set up of systems and all kinds of work. I've been to China many times. But then after the 2012 presidential election, both Mitt Romney and Barack Obama were China bashing like crazy. And I'm like, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living (laughs) Um, because, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric regarding how China was stealing our jobs and damaging our economy. And so subsequent to that, I got some of the people who worked for me together and we designed a methodology for evaluating the possibility of bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. And after that, we established the Reshoring Institute, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. And we provide research and information. We do case studies, some coaching and consulting work for companies that are evaluating their global manufacturing strategy. And by that, I mean what should be kept in China or in Asia to serve the Asian market and what could possibly be brought back to the U.S. That's our favorite thing is to bring companies back to America. But, you know, we have to make an economic case in order to do that. And that's more complicated than simply looking at the labor costs and so forth. I mean, you have to consider tax rates and the ability to serve the U.S. market, logistics, your supply base, all kinds of cost approaches, including how can you automate and reduce labor. So if you take a step back and look at the big picture, not all the jobs that went offshore are going to come back to America, and they probably shouldn't. We don't really want the 23 cent an hour t-shirt production back in the U.S. What we want are advanced manufacturing jobs that pay a living wage. And Mm. so the global strategy all of a sudden becomes, holy cow, where should we be manufacturing and what, what are the markets we're serving and so forth, which is a real strategic step up for a lot of companies that in the past simply looked for low cost environments. Really interesting. I'm sure that it is a very interesting time to be in your business, specifically with the trade wars that have been going on. Can you speak a little bit to how that is affecting global manufacturing and your clients? 
Yeah. So, yes, it's very chaotic right now. I guess I would uh, treat it that way. Tariffs are, as I'm sure the audience knows and everyone knows, are essentially a tax on imports into the U.S. And that means that companies that are importing parts for their production, if they're importing finished goods, if they're dealing with global supply chains, their costs are increasing because now they have to pay the tax on those goods. And that those taxes are then typically passed on to their customers because it's hard to absorb 25%, for example, into your cost structure. So, you know, we're dealing with a lot of economic profiles with our clients to determine, you know, what the strategy should be. And then in other cases, I'm also a licensed customs broker, so I deal a lot with import-export things. So we are also assisting clients with their exclusion requests uh, according to the new tariff structure. Can they be excluded from that structure? Should they reclassify their goods? How are they importing things? So, you know, trying to come up with various strategies as well as tactics to address the chaotic world trade environment that we're in today. Quite scary for a lot of companies, especially, you know, those that said we're going to move to Vietnam or Korea or Thailand. There are rumblings in Washington that all of those other countries are also on the hit list for tariffs. So you may be running, but you might not be able to hide. Right. Yeah, I know myself, I have several clients that are dealing with these issues, specifically with Vietnam, and they did exactly what you're saying. They went from China as soon as the tariffs hit to importing from Vietnam, and now it looks like that may be problematic as well. What do you think that the top priorities for manufacturers should be over the next three to five years? Well, you know, it used to be the executives that I worked with were very focused on customer service, order fulfillment times, the ability to optimize their factories, reducing inventory, all of the things that would be included in a day-to-day operation. And so to me, that's the execution side of the business and learning how to be better at it over time. But now you also have to consider strategy. And that means where in the world are you manufacturing? How are you controlling those global supply chains? You know, the other layer on top of this, there's the trade war and the desire to find a reasonably priced cost structure. But also, we're also living in an environment of terrorism. And Mm-hmm. Uh, that means that there are import-export structures that have to be addressed. Like, can you actually export some of the technology? If so, where? If so, do you have to have a license? There are a lot of layers to this after 9-11 that became very complicated in terms of world trade. So what I see, the executives that I've worked with over the last 25 or 30 years have shifted a lot from focusing on and controlling and optimizing their execution of manufacturing to include this whole other section on strategy and considering all the strategic parts in operating in a global environment. So there's been a lot of change and shift and certainly the growth of supply chain, which you know used to be managing the shipping dock um, mm-hmm. or the purchasing department 
to an executive level. So the supply chain people now have a seat on executive row. They're often executive VP of supply chain or global operations. 20 years ago, that was rare. Today's environment, it's very prominent. And it requires different skill set, different education levels. We see lots of MBAs now, um, mm-hmm. a lot of people focused on data and so forth. So it's really shifted the business environment overall. It sounds like your business has likely changed dramatically over the years, right? So you, as you were involved in helping companies find sources of manufacturing in China, and now it's more of a global supply chain and strategy issue. It sounds like you're doing services for your clients that you didn't do previously. Is that true? Yeah, kind of true. I mean, there's certainly more emphasis on the strategy side these days. I've been in management consulting for a long time. So that's sort of translates into strategy by and large. But, you know, yeah, I mean, we used to do more operations projects, and today it's much more global supply chain structures and architectures. Mm -hmm. So different level of thinking and much more sophisticated, I would say. I'm always impressed by women that navigate change in their markets clearly the way you have. If people wish to contact you, share with us your contact information, your website, how people can reach out. Okay. So first of all, my phone number is the best way to get a hold of me, and that's 408-605-8867. For Blue Silk Consulting, which is where I do a lot of the strategy work and the China work. And by the way, we are still helping companies shift or manufacture in China or shift to other countries. So that's part of that business. My email is rcoats, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at bluesilkconsulting.com. And then on the Reshoring Institute, I would really encourage everybody to go to that website. It's reshoringinstitute.org. And there we post all of the research that we do. And we're also affiliated with six universities, about to have seven. We're going to take on a new client this week. So we have uh, six universities. We have interns, mostly graduate students from these universities. And they help us with our research as well as any projects that we're working on. And uh, all of that information, they write case studies and so forth. All of that is on the website. And you don't have to pay or sign up for anything. You can just download it. We consider it a public service. We also have a lot of labeling information there. The companies are often stuck with, how do I label my products made in the USA or can I label them that way? And there's a lot of nuance to that as well. So we have a lot of research there. So that is reshoringinstitute.org. And then my email for that is rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. Wonderful. One more thing I wanted to ask you. You're a best-selling author as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Along the way, I wrote five books. (laughs) The first book, 42 Rules for Sourcing and Manufacturing in China, has been an Amazon bestseller in its category for almost 10 years. So wow. that's kind of interesting. And then my most recent book I wrote with an attorney. I do quite a bit of expert witness work as well. So I get mm-hmm. involved in legal disputes between supply chain partners generally. And I worked with an attorney in Cleveland for a whole year on a project, and we decided to write a book together. And so that's an interesting book for supply chain people. It's sort of a good desk reference 
The first part of each chapter, which I wrote, is on various processes like purchasing and warehousing and manufacturing. And the back half of each chapter is the legal precedent and what clauses you should be putting into any contracts. So it's really handy for supply chain people and attorneys who are trying to learn about supply chain. So and that one is called Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes. But they're all under my name on Amazon. Everything is sold there. Wonderful. Wow, that's very impressive. Please give us again one more time the best way to contact you. The best way is probably my phone, and that is 408-605-8867. And I live in Silicon Valley, so I don't start taking calls till after 9 a.m. Pacific time. Okay, great. Okay. Well, this is an absolute delight, and I think the WAM podcast is lucky to have you, Rosemary. Yeah, so Fran, so because this is an introductory podcast where we're both talking about our businesses, going forward, we'll each have separate podcasts. Fran, can you tell us about your business, Accelerated Manufacturing Brokers? Sure. So I am the president and founder of Accelerated Manufacturing Brokers. We are a mergers and acquisitions firm that works exclusively within the manufacturing community. We sell nationally. Generally speaking, our clients have revenues between 2 and $20 million and net income of at least a half a million. We've been servicing the manufacturing community for over 25 years. I actually started out in this industry as an industrial auctioneer. So I was helping companies, manufacturers exit their businesses when there was some sort of need for speed. There may have been a medical issue, but more often than not, there was some sort of financial issue where they needed to close operations down in an accelerated time frame. But over the years, the people that we were dealing with that were buying equipment on a regular basis were growing, thriving, and successful manufacturers. And it was actually at their behest that we began our journey in mergers and acquisitions to both help them acquire businesses to grow and to exit, eventually exit their own company for retirement. So it's been an interesting journey. For a very long time, we ran two divisions, both auction and merger and acquisition. But we hit a tipping point in the M&A field where we grew over 400% for three years running. At that juncture, we shut down the, the auction side of the equation, and we've been solely focused on mergers and acquisitions for quite a number of years. So give me an example of a typical client that you have, and you know what's the process that you go through? Oh, sure. So oftentimes, well, first, some potential clients will contact us several years in advance just to kind of get a feel for what the value of their company is. They're starting to think about retirement. They need the sale of the business to fund their retirement, and they're not quite sure where they are, how long it's going to take, and what the business will contribute to their retirement. We actually love when they do that. 
because if they come to us early enough, we can coach them on certain fundamentals that quality buyers look for and get them to a better place when they're ready to retire. So the first thing, we'll do evaluation on their company and give them some recommendations. The process in today's market, and this, listen, this changes depending on where, what year, the politics of a given year. Right now, it takes between 9 and 12 months typically to sell a business. The more complicated the manufacturing process, the more complicated the operation, it could take longer. But our evaluation process takes about 30 days. Interestingly, we do not charge for this. There are many firms that work nationally and do these national seminars, and they'll charge a manufacturer, even a small one, between 30000 and 75000 to walk them through the valuation process. We just don't do that. Most of our clients are founder-led organizations. They've built their business from nothing, and they do not take too kindly to someone asking to get paid before they've performed a service. <laughs> so it just sets our business model. It's a little bit different. So would you say that the M&A market in this environment, in this economy, is improving or changing as compared with a couple years ago? For manufacturing, it's hotter than it's been in quite some time more than a decade. The Market Pulse Report, which is a report put out by Pepperdine University, it tracks the M&A market on a quarterly basis. So for the last several years, every quarter, manufacturing has been either number one or number two as far as transactions completed, definitely more sought after than other types of businesses throughout the United States. And interestingly, last quarter showed that manufacturing businesses were selling at more than their asking price. Right now, there are more quality and qualified, both professionally and financially, buyers for manufacturing companies than there are companies on the market. So we are in a true seller's market right now. Sounds like Along, uh, real estate in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go, right? I, in all honesty, I don't think it's going to stay that way. The group of manufacturers that were set to retire during the Great Recession, many of them continued to work and had to continue to work for another decade because of what they lost in the stock market and their savings. So now we're getting to a stage where those guys are retiring together with the people that are coming of retirement age today. So... I think sometime in the next probably five years, there will be a tip in the market where there's an overabundance of manufacturing companies on the market. And at that point, it'll obviously begin to turn to more of a buyer's market. So uh, a lot of churn, a lot of activity these days, keeping you hopping, yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah, sure is. What kind of buyers are actually buying manufacturing companies? Are they investors or experienced manufacturing people or, you know, who who is buying manufacturing companies? 
So very interesting. We see there's three categories, and you've probably already guessed what at least two of them are. You'll always have large strategics, companies in the same sector. They're looking to grow geographically. They're looking to expand their product or service offerings, or quite simply to take out a competitor. You have private equities are the second category. Private equities may or may not already have a holding, a similar holding in manufacturing. They don't always. And then the third category is, again, according to the Market Pulse report, for many, many quarters in the last four to five years, this category has beat out large strategics and private equities for the acquisition of manufacturing companies. And that's folks leaving corporate America to acquire their way into entrepreneurship. So the profile is typically they're in their early 50s, maybe late 40s, but they're at a stage of life where they've held an executive position, maybe for a Fortune 500 company, typically sales, marketing, or business development are the most common experience that we see these guys having. And again, they're they're leaving this. Their kids are typically just about to graduate or graduated college. They've made their employers very wealthy with their particular skill set of sales, marketing, and business development. And now they want to do it for themselves. It's a wonderful category of buyer to work with. Yeah, I can imagine. So those kind of buyers, corporate buyers who are expanding their operations, what are private equity companies looking for? I mean, obviously investment opportunities, but is there anything in particular that they're after? Well, I would say every single category, whether it's a large strategic, a private equity, or an individual, they're all looking for the same key elements in a manufacturing company. They want to see a company that's not totally dependent upon the seller. They want to see key customer relationships not totally dependent on the seller. So key managers in place. They also want to see an appropriate customer concentration, sector concentration. There are some industries where it's very difficult to get around a sector or a customer concentration. For instance, take aerospace component manufacturing. If you're doing anything of importance in aerospace, there's only a certain number of key players. So there's usually a higher than normal customer concentration. But that's fine. People that are in the industry understand that. One of the most important things that people look for in a quality acquisition are that there are standard operating procedures in place and that they're well documented. This tells an acquiring individual or company that the target company will be easy to transition. It's just one of the key things that anybody looks for in an acquisition. That's yeah. one of the first things that I look for in the consulting world, too. I'll go to a client and say, can I see your SOPs? <laughs> Sometimes I get a quizzical look. <laughs> and, you know, you're in trouble. Run. Yeah, or a sheepish look saying, well, you know, we have some here, and we started that project last year. And yeah, uh, wow. standard operating procedures and and companies that actually follow those procedures are the yes. winners. 
Yeah, absolutely. In this day and age, the one last thing I'll tell you is when a potential acquirer walks through a shop, they're looking to see the age of the workers. They don't want to see everyone close to retirement because if they are, their investment would be at risk. Oh, that's interesting. Any new initiatives for 2020? We have historically only worked on the sell side of the M&A equation. So we've represented the, the selling company. But what we're finding is that some of the buyers that come to us come in complete and utter frustration after having shopped for over a year, sometimes two years, to find an appropriate acquisition. So later this quarter, we will begin a buy side initiative to help these people. Yeah. Very good. Very good. And Fran, I think we're nearing the end of our half an hour here. So can you give us your contact information? Sure. Thank you. So our phone number at Accelerated is 908-387-1000. The website is acceleratedmfgbrokers.com. And I can personally be reached via email, Fran, at acceleratedmfgbrokers.com. You want to repeat the phone number one more time? 908-387-1000. All right. Well, I think we did our job introducing each other, and uh, (laughs) hopefully we'll have lots of podcasts to look forward to in the future. Looking forward to it. Absolutely delightful, Rosemary. I'm fascinated by what you do. Uh, and I probably too. have people that I can recommend for your business. Sounds so great. we'll have to talk more privately. Sounds great. Thank you very much, everybody. And uh, we'll call it a day. Thank you. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.